This episode of Probably Science is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. For an entire month of access for free, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. Probably Science. Welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. And I am Andy Wood. Hey, Andy. Hello, Matt. We're on a time crunch for this recording. We can't mess around and we've got a guest that I wanted on for ages. So let's just jump. Why don't we just jump straight into our guest? Yes. Just a guest that you, you may know from Whose Lines in Anyway or Office Space or Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves or any number of other things. It's Mike McShane. Hi, guys. Hey, Andy. Hey, Matt. Hey, how are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. I'm a... Uh... Just hanging out. We got. I just moved into a new place, and we're getting everything set up. So I've got the mic, kind of Jimmy rigged up against uh, my my drafting table. Okay. And, uh, so yeah, it's kind of. I feel like a frontier podcast person. <laughs> uh, you're, you're in Los Angeles, though. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm in uh, Sherman Oaks, which uh, a friend of mine is from the south. Uh, pronounced as Shireman Oaks, and I went, is that a character from Chaucer? And um, <laughs> it sounds like it's Shireman Oaks, the gentle people. <laughs> it seems, yeah. Um, what do you do on your draftsman table? Uh, well, you know, I used to be an illustrator, and, and I, I love working at a drafting table. I'm not good at a desk. That way I can get a lot of crap on it. And uh, so I've got all my books and stuff. Right now it's actually storage uh, because um, I haven't put everything in the drawers yet. So, you know, I still I still draw a little, still sketch a little for my own amusement. Um, but basically, it's like it's like being having my own private dining table to spread crap out on, which I've always okay. enjoyed. Oh, God, so, I love that. I, I, I would love to have a big like a big. T- we, we, you know, we're currently Holly and I are both operating out of the same workspace. I'm currently oh. podcasting. I'm I'm on a bed right now. I'm currently got like a sort of. Uh, a TV dinner tray that the microphone is balanced on and then a, a laptop stand that the computer is on that's a little bit further away from it. It's amazing what people are making do with. And you see them on the screen, you know, they got like a green screen the size of a pillowcase. And you go, look, I'm, I'm in the Hall of Versailles. <laughs> yes, yes, you are. Uh, there was I'll that buy. one presenter or host uh, or anchor, I guess, who was in his like, workout shorts slash underwear and the camera barely caught it did you guys see that oh yeah i did there's been a fair few like glorious ones like that yeah where he just like didn't quite realize that uh, (laughs) the he'd only dressed from the waist up and hadn't quite framed himself (laughs) out some people have been doing that for ages phil nichols is always naked when he's talking to you and you get used to it (laughs) (laughs) uh but yeah i think he's you know He's doing that on purpose. That's his MO. He, he does that. That's his, <laughs> yes, it is his MO. I actually, I answered the door naked once to upstage him. <laughs> I was at Richard Vranch's house and he came over and he called Richard up because Richard has all his musical equipment. He said he needed a keyboard and an amp. And so I said, now's my chance to get him. And uh, so I completely stripped down. I mean, full birthday suit. Because Phil's famous. He has no fear as a performer. He really doesn't. And you know I'm I'm riddled with fear. I'm like I'm a fear patty melt. And, uh, <laughs> so I answered the door naked, and it shut him up for about ten seconds. And I went, my job is complete now. And, uh, it was like it was the butchest thing I could do to a guy like Phil is to be more naked than him. Because I do. I look like you know the Michelin Man with about fifteen cubic feet of air missing out of me. But, uh, <laughs> He 
probably, I'd hope Phil saw that as an honor, as a, as a true tribute. I hope he did too. You know, funny people getting naked in front of each other is, uh, or dropping your pants, which is, of course, an ancient British tradition in comedy. <laughs> you know, I used to it say is, it's one of our better came... jokes that we gave to the world. <laughs> you did. If aliens came to the UK and removed the word trousers from your vocabulary base, you guys would collapse. <laughs> yeah, we at least half of the uh, comedies would suddenly be dramas. Like, why is this hard-hitting drama filmed in a brightly lit studio? <laughs> <laughs> With an audience that applauds every so often and otherwise makes no noise. What is the funniest thing to have revealed when pants drop? Is it is it just like boxer shorts with hearts on them, or is it full nudity? Or uh... I I think nudity with shoes and socks is the biggest one, Be- because you have you present a form of, of mortality and sexuality, and it's more mortal because you have these banal, especially like got brown shoes and black socks. <laughs> that just shows yep. that you know you, what is it Shakespeare? Poor forked radish. That's what you are. You know that's it. <laughs> There is a thing, um, Matt, Matt's been to Burning Man once and I've been a few times and, and there is a phenomenon um, that some people like to partake in, not to be crude, but uh, just called shirt cocking, where they wear just porky piggot around Burning Man all day, <laughs> just a shirt and nothing else. And uh, it's a very unpleasant sight. Um, I think people do it because they know it's unpleasant. You know, you have to know, I mean, like, you know, in certain cultures, the, the guys are naked or they usually even got at least a gourd around their knob. Because <laughs> yeah, once, yeah. once that gets, you know, once it gets cheesy, it's painful and I don't know, it attracts, you know, insects and it could probably be a point of, of contention for a, you know, an insecure warthog and you could lose it. <laughs> Unless you're Trump and then they'd never see anything. Right. God, by the way, guys, can you remember the order? Is it person, woman, man, camera, TV? What was this? Around? I saw this going around on social media and I didn't know what it was. It was one of those, oh, like, I'm going to have to... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like the new Kafefe, I guess, uh, kind of. It, except that it was intentional. He he took a cognitive test, and he's so proud of how he did that. In an interview, he repeated this one question that he got right five times. It was just a memorization of five things in order. And I guess in the test, they come back to it later, and they, and then he keeps hammering on the fact, like, and if you can actually get him in order, that's like bonus points. They're just blown away. They're like, yep. how, do you, how did you remember these words? These five words. Ten minutes later, it's amazing. No one's ever done this before. It's like yeah. he's passed a remedial Duolingo test on it's, his iPhone. He's yeah. well, thrilled. It's a test that's it's a test that is specifically designed to catch dementia and cognitive impairment. So you know, it's like one of those things. It's like a sort of you know, an alcohol test or whatever. You just you're boasting about being able to walk in a straight line or touch your nose. Like it's one of those things that is, <laughs> mm-hmm. if you are in a state of impairment, it is a difficult thing to do. But for most people in the normal state of sobriety, then it's it's a fairly easy task to walk in a straight line toe to toe. And it's yeah, there's uh, no there's no there's no way you can pass a sobriety test and prove that you are the world's greatest athlete in the process like it only proves the lack of a negative not a positive well i i do wonder because you know you i think that those tests i know we have listeners who know a lot more about this than i do but the uh i think part of the reason that you do those tests is also to sort of set a benchmark that you can then come back to because it, you've, because one of the things on the test, for example, is counting backwards in sevens. And if you're very mm-hmm. good at mental arithmetic, that's going to be something that would go quite late in your progression of disease. Whereas if you, you know, counting back from counting back in sevens from a hundred would be some people's nightmare in the prime of their life. Yeah. I often wonder, you know, um, 
when I was a kid, I had to take this thing called the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory Test. Oh, yeah. Because um, I had to go to a psychiatrist. And he kept asking you questions phrased in various ways. And I realized if you just answered as sort of anodynely as possible, that it would satisfy most of the questions. Like, are you often, do you feel alone in rooms? And like five questions later, sometimes in a room, are you alone? <laughs> you know? And it was like, what the, you know, I was getting around all the time. I got committed anyway. <laughs> but my imagination did that to me. They asked me, this doctor asked me about, you know, well, if you could do anything to your parents, what would you do to them? And I just like, I said, oh, this is great. It's a creative writing class test. And he goes, he wants to kill his family. Please lock him up now. And I was like, man, I always trust the fucking doctors, right? No, you just just accidentally asked a kid who was an artist and improviser. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. The the very same skill that got you locked up got you on TV a few decades later. It is, which is like being in a madhouse, but the lighting's better. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And hopefully the craft services are a little bit. That's true. That's true, you know. But it'd be great if they did put Thorazine on the craft service. But that was the early 80s anyway. Well, that that happened. Like, I I know, um, well, you know Paul Merton very well from doing multiple uh, improv shows and tours with him. But, like, I, I remember him talking in an interview about he got he got committed at some point uh because you know of mania that he was suffering and it took him several weeks to convince the doctors that the stories he was telling about being on a tv show every week were not made up i know you wondered they're going that's like channel four should go we need to show those doctors these shows that's our audience right seen whose line because <laughs> it's it's pre-google and he just had these stories of like you know millions of people watching me every week which <laughs> if you don't i guess if you don't watch one uh the two tv shows that he had then you're just like oh this guy has, has these delusions of yeah yeah, some some somebody in the place goes, look, it's Paul Merton from TV, and the doctor's, oh my god, it's catching. <laughs> he's, he's got disciples now. Um, Mike, we before we get into the stories from the week, we'd like to ask our guests, um, what if anything is their background in science, and that that's oh. range from classes that you liked or didn't like to blowing things up in the woods with your friends or interests you've had. Okay, um, for me as a kid, um. It was first. It was geology because I grew up in the Midwest in Kansas, and we used to ride our bikes around where they'd recently cut through limestone rock to create the the highway system, the post Eisenhower era highway system, and that exposed a lot of strata that I'd never seen before. And I was also, you know, I was had a Catholic education with some good nuns, and um, one of the nuns made a point early on, you know. Uh, informing us that Kansas at one time was a large ocean with lots of marine creatures, um, you know, that are no longer existent. And I, of course, believe that because I believe the nun was one of them. And, um, <laughs> but you would you would go through and see the strata of like you see trilobites, you know, ammonites and um, all sorts of stuff. And so my dad, very, you know, I'm adopted. My dad tried to get me to do baseball and stuff and. It was kind of like a king of the hill. He was like, you know, he was that character. And I was Bobby. He'd throw the baseball and hit me in the arm. I go, Give it. <laughs> okay, well, that's not it for the boy, you know. But he realized I liked that stuff, so he got me a chisel and a, a little book of rocks and minerals of the Midwest, and, and a hammer. And he just sent me on my way. 
And so I'd ride my bike and ship stuff off. I still have a few of them in the house. Oh, wow. Also, you know, uh, some anthropology, because I lived in the Midwest, and you still could find arrowheads and things like that from the Osage and uh, Potawatomi tribes around where I lived. Oh, wait, where did, where did you live? In Kansas, uh, Shawnee okay. Mission. Oh. oh, for some reason. I thought Potawatomi, that, those were also in, in Michigan, I believe. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And I found it later because I'm adopted. My mother was Métis, so she was a French-Canadian Chippewa. Oh. So from that, uh, so she was a Uper. Of course, uh, Upper Peninsula, yeah. Yeah, so I have a little, I have a little of that Uper action going in my genetic pool. <laughs> um, but I think that was, geology was really big. Chemistry was big for me. I liked organic chemistry as an idea. Um, when I was 12, my dad bought me a Gibson chemistry set, which was this metal framed box that had two latches on it. It opened up like a book and had these all these shelves with all these reagents and you know you could grow crystals in a box of, of, of you know water and stuff like that and i was just for christmas i'm an only kid i was spoiled and and so i was like oh what you know so yes yes <laughs> and my dad said later because what happened is he saw the look on my face it was right before i hit puberty when all the problems were going to happen <laughs> he saw my face and went no and he took it away from me <laughs> wow and hit it and i was just so crustfallen you know Wait, that what's the thought, logic there huh what's the logic there because if he doesn't have it, he won't kill the dog or dip it in crystalline solution. Oh, oh, okay. He won't drink, you know, because I would eat and drink anything I'd, in the fridge. I always had a weight problem, so they're always trying to stop me from eating. And I was, you know, I was like, I was like a, a wily coyote. I would find some way to get into the fridge. So my father <laughs> thought he's going to make something. The boy's going to drink it, and that's it. Oh God, you know, social <laughs> services are going to put us in jail, killing the adopted kid for God's sake, you know. So years later, we had it. We had it out about it. I said, "Why didn't you trust me? I kind of had a Nobel Prize, right? Yeah." <laughs> but he was like, "Oh, it's okay. You're on TV. That's good enough." I went, "Oh, thanks, Dad." <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I, I forgot, Matt. Did you? I had a chemistry set also. I can't remember what I did with it, but did you have one also, Matt? Oh yeah, yeah. I had a chemistry set. Yeah, uh, they weren't you know, particularly you them, great. Like I, I also suspect. Um, I suspect a decade or so earlier they were probably they probably gave you some more interesting things yeah mercury or something to, to roll around in your hand we've talked about this on the show before where my parents when it was a rainy day at school and they couldn't go out to play they would just give them a vial of mercury and tip it onto the desk and let them play with it Ooh. so brilliant <laughs> it's just oh like, my god yeah, just yeah. You know, see how it just like makes interesting globules, and you can push it together, and it it makes bigger globules. And I mean, there's no denying it does. Yeah. I yeah. I mean, it's just you know there are there are lots of things that would I would love to be able to do were it not for the fact that they are incredibly bad ideas, and it's now well established that you shouldn't. I had remember I had a collection of like you know sedimentary and igneous rocks and things like that, and I had a big chunk of uh, um, asbestos, mm. the stone that makes asbestos. Well, and of course, it was flaking off and herring off. You kept going, oh, this is interesting. You know? Oh, my God. Well, again, this is another thing that's come up on the show. I cannot convince my mum to get rid of her ironing board that has an asbestos tray at the end to put Ooh. the iron on that she uses multiple times a week and has done for decades. And it's just a block of asbestos. And every time I go home, I'm like, this is asbestos. Throw it away. But she's like, it's a good ironing board and they don't make them like this anymore. And then they're... <laughs> The new ironing boards aren't as good. 
So is it is it only the go. fact that it, it's so particulate that you can inhale small pieces of it? Is is that the main danger of it? Yeah, I, I think I, I looked it up a while back, and the form of asbestos that is in the ironing board isn't the most dangerous, but no, all asbestos is dangerous. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what it it's something to do with the way the fibers, um, the particular shape of the or type of size and shape of the fibers, uh, get into your lungs um, and just stay there and promote cancer or promote it was it mesothelioma when they're pressed between boards to make fireproof walling and stuff I think that was one of the most dangerous and then they were applied to a, the plaster to make what we call cottage cheese ceilings so mm-hmm. like you know we, we had a Caroline we had to have our roof our ceilings redone excuse me um, we had to leave while they did it because we had old ceilings from like the late 60s and they come in in specialized clothing with mm-hmm. Spe- yeah, special protective respirators and everything. Uh, Are yeah. all those, uh, if you have those sort of like breakable ceiling tiles from the 70s or earlier, is that is, is it a safe bet that was asbestos then? I think it's underneath that. It's, it's behind mm-hmm. that stuff. The actual okay. ceiling, the stuff you can physically see is not asbestos, but just behind it is potentially asbestos. Yes. All right. I think the, for the cottage cheese ceilings, it was blended in. And of course, there was a sealant in it which would make it, as they would send, then safe. But, of course, as time goes by, these things dry out. You know, if they're in the sun, that changes their composition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there you go. Yeah. Why do my lungs feel like stone? Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, while, while we're talking about things inside that are going inside you, this story, I, I can't believe... I, it's my fault for not looking at our Twitter account and the tweets that we'd had sent in last week. Mm-hmm. Um because last week's episode, we we did a story about the world's hungriest black hole and mm-hmm. its astonishing rate of consumption. And Andy mentioned something about competitive eating. And at no point did I realize that listener Andrew Davis had tweeted at us a competitive eating related story. I will I'll put this in the show notes here so you guys can see it as well. There you go. But um, competitive hot dog eaters are, according to the study according to the sports science study, reaching the limit of human performance. <laughs> so oh this, is, God. this is one sport that was left out of... Um, we had David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene, on a few years ago. And it was a uh-huh. fascinating book, and he was one of the parts of the book is talking about the, the potential limits, the maximum limits of human performance and how close we are to reaching them in each sport. But at no point did he mention the competitive eating world and that sport. Um... But oh my god! Look at that dude, Joey Chestnut. What a J- name! Yeah, yeah, he's the he's the new champion. That he's... guy's bowel movement must look like an Australian <laughs> anthill. <laughs> uh, so yeah, the the four minute mile and the two hour marathon were once believed impossible. <laughs> now a new gauntlet has been thrown down for the world of elite competition. A scientific analysis suggests competitive eaters have come. Within nine hot dogs of the limit of human performance. <laughs> the, the theoretical ceiling has been set at 84 hot dogs in 10 minutes. The current world record set by Joey Jaws Chestnut earlier this month stands at 75. James Smoliger, a sports medicine specialist at High Point University in North Carolina who authored the research, described 84 hot dogs as the maximum possible limit for a Usain Bolt-type performance. <laughs> Does that imply Usain Bolt has hit the wall also? We can't, we can't best I, I think the implication is that Usain Bolt is 
is approaching, is is getting very close. To yeah. the, what he's managed is extremely close to the theoretical maximum of a human f- physique. Um, the analysis is based on 39 years of historical data from Nathan's famous hot dog eating contest, an annual spectacle of gluttony held on Coney Island, New York. This is according to the, New- the Guardian article that I'm reading. Combined with the latest sports science theory, which uses mathematical modeling to protect- project trends in performance. Hot dog composition and size have reportedly remained unchanged at Nathan's Famous in the fast food company's 104-year history, allowing for valid comparison mm. between competitors across years. It's a perfect, it's a perfect experiment from that point of view. Yeah. There is a control, and that it, it's it's well controlled by size and composition of food. I wonder, do they have to weigh the hot dogs? That must be part of it, right? So they don't have some outliers that happen to come off the line too big and throw off the competition. I w- I would guess that it's more of a visual inspection. Okay, yeah, and I because th- there's a mean because like I said that they haven't changed the the hot dog length and. I mean, in, in that time, so you have a mean there to, to right. work off of. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think that that'd be my guess. You know, they're they're a big chain, so in general, they have would consistency. Well, they in general, would. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, they they would have they would be checking in their normal manufacturing process to know what the sort of variation of size is and know that it's within a certain bounds. And then I think you've got yeah. to assume that on average, if one person gets one or two that's bigger, they'd also probably get one or two that's smaller by approximately the same amount. By the time you have um uh by the time you're you're in the hi- mid to high teens uh or tens rather um improvement curves in elite sports ranging from sprinting to vault pole vaulting tend to follow a so-called sigmoidal curve featuring an initial slow and steady rise followed by an era of rapid improvement and finally a leveling off hot dog eating has definitely reached that second plateau says smoliger you know what? I know what else has a sigmoidal curve is Joy Chestnut's colon. <laughs> Why did the British guys get into this, Matt? Well, this I is mean, the Savoy is huge. It is compared we, to a regular hot dog. We have been training on larger hot sausages for most of our life. What is this giant British hot dog of which you speak? It's it, it's a a large, I guess, salami sized hot sausage yeah usually eaten late at night after you come out of the pub yeah um so yeah we we talked before about the um uh the uh how the the big change that that kobayashi caused in the business so the early years of nathan's contest featured a motley assortment of winners mostly big guys big obese guys according to this article who chanced their luck on the day according to smoliger in 1984, the contest was won by Birgit Felden, a 17-year-old 130-pound West German judo team member who managed nine and a half hot dogs despite having never eaten one before the competition. <laughs> How could you have never... Wow, had hot dogs not reached Germany in 1984? Wait, you could win with nine and a half in ten minutes? Like, under one a minute, you could win this thing back then? That's I a fascinating stat. I wonder if rate counts, as, then the rate must count more than the amount. Yeah, I would love to know at, at just what period in time I could have broken various world records in various sports. Yeah, right? Dude, I'm, yeah. Like, was there I mean, ever a point... Stoned? so many times we've eaten all sorts of awful shit and also i'm just thinking about other sports like i'm a i'm a pretty unathletic person i'm just wondering how far back i'd have to go to be able to win say the 100 meters you oh, know you know when they were like you if you go back far enough and they were just running in dress shoes <laughs> <laughs> and a suit while drinking you know just like if i just showed up in some reeboks could i 
<laughs> could I have, yeah. in like I could have the French court 1820 so could I have beaten or, or, or would I have to go back to sort of prehistory would I, am I is there never a point in recorded human history where I could have been the fastest runner I, I'm looking up the progression of the 100 meter freestyle because um, I was I, I am and was a swimmer I was a better swimmer 20 years ago but um, I would have held the world record up until the 60s <laughs> 1960s yeah wow holy shit thereabouts thereabouts yeah and, and also that's remarkable because also you know you took it seriously at college but you you were never you were never pro or even semi-pro you no were, and you're, it was never even at, at ncaa's it was only successful within a league that had that didn't have any athletic scholarships so yeah. and and you would have held the world record I mean, this is in long course meters, and I never. If you if you translate my bet, uh, hold on a second. <laughs> Let me do the swim swam converter. Uh, continue on. <laughs> I have to figure out if this is actually true. Hold on. Would that entail a different sort of technique in, like you know, uh, oil or the size of the swimsuits and things like that? It's just sixties. Uh, uh, well, no, I think th- a lot of technique things hadn't. Like, I think uh, until the. Pff, if you look at like Johnny Weissmuller, they swam mm-hmm. with their heads out of the water for some reason, which definitely slows you down. Like it was heads up, like water polo swimming. Um, let's see, the event 100 freestyle. I know I did uh, 4572 in 100 yards. So it converts from short course yards to long course meters. And oh, 5234, which was the world record ni- until 1960. Eight. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I, I, I think I could have beaten the, I think I could have, I could have eaten the hot dog eating world record in 1984 had I been an adult de- and not you vegetarian. Could have. You could top nine and a half in 10 minutes. I, yeah, any of us yeah. could do that right now, I think. Yeah. And I'm a very slow eater. You've seen me eating. That's, I'm that's an incredibly true. slow eater, but you I still couldn't. think I could have done that with a little yeah, bit of practice. Did. You have so, to detail the condiments too to make sure you can get them in slicker because it needs it needs some moisture. Well, that's the other. So they, the big revolution came in the 1990s when the participation of Japanese extreme eaters changed the playing field. In 2001, Takeru Kobayashi downed 50 hot dogs, smashing the previous record of 25 and an eighth. <laughs> so he 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 almost doubled the world the previous world record by. Yeah, the big change was it was no longer just huge guys who like to eat a lot. It was thin guys who trained their stomach to expand and didn't have large amounts of fat pressing down to compact it. Um, so oh. elite eaters started to follow elaborate training regimes with some ingesting vast volumes of liquid or gels to expand the stomach without having to process the calories. Chestnut, this year's winner, claims to train for three months leading up to the competition, including weekly practice runs, a carefully controlled diet, and yoga and breathing exercises to help with mental focus. In the trade, being lean is generally viewed as an advantage because a thick layer of fat around the middle can constrict the stomach. The 84 theoretical maximum comes from fitting a curve to the data and also factoring in the possibility of outliers whose performance lies within a certain error margin of the curve. The prediction should hold true, Smoliger says, unless a new kind of competitor shows up, <laughs> someone with gigantism or a metabolic condition that placed them well outside the normal parameters of human biology. But that's also what sport is, isn't it? Like, one right. of the things we discovered from, from Epstein's book is just how much genetic freaks factor into sports to the extent there was some statistic about 
in uh I I can't remember what the height was and what the exact percentage was, but there was an if you were over seven foot tall, I think it was, or over seven foot one, you had something like a one in ten chance of playing in the NBA. Like almost I'm plucking the numbers out of my out of faint memory from several years ago. But it was it was some ridiculous proportion of people over seven foot tall are in the NBA. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, there was a guy on our swim team who was maybe only 6'10", but he always wore this T-shirt his mom had made for him in high school. It said, no, I don't play basketball. Right. <laughs> um, uh, the, the, um, the limiting factor is likely to be chewing and swallowing rather than gastric capacity, based on the observation that at the end of the 10 minutes, many competitors are still trying to gobble down more sausages and buns. According to the research published in the Royal Society Journal Biology Letters, that's a legit journal, the achievements of human speed eaters are impressive even by comparison with other species. Humans are able to eat faster than bears or coyotes, said Smallinger. Wolves, which devour prey at an incredible speed, could outdo even elite human eaters, however. We're better than bears and coyotes, but worse than wolves. Right, so if you're making that Air Bud adaptation... Well, I think I told you my one experience with competitive eating was a five-minute competition at a backyard barbecue, um, and I I was playing with a four or five other people. I didn't know a lot of people at this barbecue, and someone was doing commentary, and someone kept mentioning someone by the name of Gypsy who was who was killing us. And I was looking around, and I thought that I was in the lead, and then I realized that there were like the five human competitors, and then next to the table there was also a dog. They were putting hot dogs in front of. So I was racing against a dog that I couldn't see. I beat the humans. <laughs> By a fair fair margin, I got seven dogs in five minutes, but I think Gypsy had ten or something. So, man, a ringer! They threw yeah. a ringer at you. Yeah. That's too bad. There was someone. It, it was a. It was a very entertaining clip where someone tried to go on Britain's Got Talent eating the most Ferrero Rocher's uh, chocolates in right. a minute or something. And not only put up a mediocre four or five, but got beaten by one of the hosts doing it behind the curtain. <laughs> and it wasn't like a joke, like doing it intentionally, slowly. I don't know. No, it wasn't. Uh, but uh, you, I, you never know. I remember a while ago just sort of thinking, um, like, you know, when, when those shows first come on the air, you're like, oh, it'd be funny to go with like the worst talent and see right. what would happen. And then after a while, you realize, oh, I just, I, nothing I could fake do would outdo some of the things that people have really seriously tried to do anyway. Yeah, that's true. Well, it was the late 70s. We had a show here. It was like the 99 cent talent show. <laughs> and it had Rip Taylor and a bunch of other people. Uh, and it was like really, you know, mediocre talent or feats of extraordinary mediocrity. Um, gussied up with like high sound effects and things like that. And it was just camp. And so you accepted that. But. These, these, you know, we're such a competitive. The UK can be too. Right? These shows of immense competition ruin. I used to watch Food Channel until it all became contests. Oh yeah, and I go, nobody's having fun anymore. Losing <laughs> <laughs> their mind. Is that the premise? I haven't seen the Great British Bake Off, but don't they say that's a, like a much more pleasant show and it's less sort of well, about the competition? Or? Yeah, it's definitely yeah. competitive, but it isn't. Uh, they they managed to make very high stakes out of very low stakes. Mm-hmm. in a very entertaining way because the whole show is sort of serene and genteel 
but underneath it all you get because of that you get so invested in just like two centimeters of under risen buns <laughs> you're just like Surely the british oh she's fucked it British are harder on themselves than anybody because it's like that exactly. And all the pressure comes from the person at the table going, "I believe I've, I've ruined it." <laughs> yep. And there's and you know they they're all sort of very supportive of each other and the hosts mm-hmm. are very supportive of the competitors and the prize is basically a trophy and bragging rights. There's no financial prize. Take Although the real collect. Yeah. Although the real prize now is that because of the success of the show, almost everyone who's been successful on it now has multiple cooking books. Oh, okay. And in some cases, TV shows. Like it's sort of it spawned a mini industry of bake with winner of Bake Off season uh, three. Um, it's kind of a flip side to that British gentility. Wait, is that the is that the noun for genteel? I think so. Let's go with that. Sure. Um, with uh, the Chase, which I've been watching, the American Chase on Netflix. I think the entire run is is up there now. And then after finishing that, went back and watched more of the British Chase. And, you know, the chasers are mean to the guests, mean to the players. And it somehow, like, comes off as meaner when it's the British chaser insulting the Americans. They're, <laughs> they're like, not prepared for it exactly, and they like, find it off-putting, but it makes sense in the British version. It's, it's a fun show. Yeah. We've been, Andy and I have both been doing a couple of quizzes run by Paul, Paul Sinha, one of the chasers, and someone mm-hmm. I know very well from his other career as a comedian. Uh and good god cause I mean, those he, pe- wow those are some top notch yeah it's because Paul, Paul's been running like some little quizzes for some friends and but all his friends are just elite level quizzes so, so you suddenly realise halfway through like he puts you in teams and you're like well I got two out of these 20 questions and and sh- she got 12 and then you realise oh she was also like the season champion of 15 to 1 and and also won mastermind and like everyone has won multiple quiz shows i like i it really is like one of those things like i thought i was pretty good at quizzes and trivia and then realized like no i'm just a vaguely keen amateur and these are all pros no you guys have a real thing i I remember seeing a pub quiz with scottish astronomers in edinburgh (laughs) at the dog to bar and it was literally was just it was it was blood on the floor, you know. Oh, come on. You don't know that's not a fucking red dwarf, you cunt. And you're just, <laughs> you're just going at each other about it. Well, you're having and to do partial like, differential equations to answer one of the questions. Yeah. The guys from, yeah, the guys from like, you know. Oh. It's a Royal Observatory versus Edinburgh University. Oh, I'm, knowledge isn't, you know, one guy was always fierce with his knowledge was Proops. Greg Proops, um, we went to college together, and the first time I saw him, he did College Bowl, which is University Challenge in the UK. Right. Okay, yeah. And uh, he played. They played Yale. I was like, because I went to state, and I was getting my vet- veterans benefits, so he had to go in early and file for that. And I was walking around the campus, and I saw they had a live show of them in Yale. And I used to watch it on TV when I was a kid, and I was like, oh, cool. So I go in there, and uh, and they go, you know, here's Yale, and there's all these guys with names like you know Stinky and Pokey and all those sort of names. <laughs> And there's like, and now this San Francisco home team and a huge waft of cannabis comes through the place. <laughs> and Proop strolls in. This is like 1980, like with a a white dinner jacket with the sleeves rolled up, black Madonna bracelets and candy red glasses. And he's as big around as a pencil. And he proceeds to sit down and he decimates Yale. Oh, that's awesome. Because Greg's got total recall. He's one of those guys who has that genetic gift. And it is a genetic gift to be able to recall information at the, immediately. 
And he's always been a voracious reader and really curious. And so it was like, you know, everything, eh, Lake Titicaca, eh, you know, Lake Fillmore, eh, you know, um, the Diet of Worms. <laughs> you know, all these old guys were like, <laughs> and he was loving it. He was, it was like, he was just chewing them up. That's, I would love, would have loved to have seen that. Oh God, I hated him and loved him. That's why we became friends. I was like, you terrify me. And yet I'm unnaturally attracted to you. I need to have you around. <laughs> I always forget that you guys didn't meet through like improv. You've known each other since you were kids. No, we knew each other in our twenties. Uh, we went to state together. He was a pretty good actor. He was a pretty brave actor too. We did Equus, and he got buck naked in the show and ran around. He's damn. He's 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 a fascinating guy. Um, and uh, it was an ideal time to live in San Francisco. Then you could you could live anywhere. It was pre you know Facebook and Google all that stuff. Right. You, we, I lived in you know a Beau Arts ballroom that was divided in half. Um, what? Wait, that kind is of that stuff a, for nothing? Is that a neighborhood? But what, was Beau Arts all over? We lived. I lived all over San Francisco. Um, that was on like Greg and I and a guy named Brian Loman because Greg and Brian got me into improv. I was a theater actor doing Shakespeare in the park, and I was just I was kind of out of my element and. Uh, and I didn't know what to do, and I was uptight. And Greg was like, "Why don't you try improv, man?" And I'm like, "I don't know." And he's like, "Dude, it's like being in a band." And I was like, "Okay, <laughs> I'll do it." And uh, right then, the Keith Johnstone book came out, Impro, the sort of British way. So I really hadn't much interest in it. But those guys, Greg and Brian, are already doing it. And yeah, that's how I got hooked up. Hey, listeners, just jumping out of the episode for a second to tell you about our sponsor. You know them, you love them. A whole bunch of you have already signed up and told us about them, and we appreciate hearing stories of what you're listening to and watching and enjoying, but it's The Great Courses Plus, which has an immense number of university-level lectures taught by top professionals in their fields in just about every topic. I, it, the number of times that we've had a subject come up on this show, and we're like, oh, I wonder, and, and they do. They have someone, they have something, including like some really academic subjects, both across science and the humanities and the arts. Uh, you know, you could relearn or calculus or learn it from the first time or do all that kind of thing. Or you could do what Andy's doing and really learn about beer and really make some use of your quarantine time. There's also a wine course that I have queued up ready to go. In fact, they've got a couple of wine courses. That's next on my list, because I, I do want to know a bit more about wine rather than just, ah, it tastes a bit grapey. So I, I'm, I'm going to do that. But also, a large number of people have, in recent years, gone pretty heavy down the whole true crime, real crime thing, and wanting to know more about that stuff. And there is a course on forensics, the point where crime and science intersect. And there is a course called Forensic History, Crimes, Frauds, and Scandals. And that is what I am diving into right now, taught by Dr. Elizabeth Murray. And, uh, you know, it starts going through things like the famous cases like Jack the Ripper and the Black Dahlia murders, and then going into sort of Hollywood deaths and into non-death-based forensics, such as blood doping in sports, the criminals of the Wild West. It's got it all. So that's what I'm doing right now. And you know, look, there's a free trial on offer to our listeners if you are looking for either a distraction or a curiosity or you want to use it to augment your studies or your learning because like i say they these aren't these aren't just sort of light courses these are taught by real professionals university level lecturers who've been chosen both for their knowledge of the subject and their ability to communicate it and you can watch it and listen to it both on your phone through your computer or your tv and you can jump between platforms so you can be driving listen to it as a podcast then get home and finish off the lecture 
on your computer or big screen. Uh, so it's very flexible. It's very user-friendly. We love it. Check it out. You can get a month of access for free going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. That is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. Since you mentioned uh, astronomy, I've just put another story in the link there. This is one sent in by our buddy Helen Simmons, who... Um, so a nuclear blast has sent a star hurtling across the galaxy. So look out, everyone. There is now, there's now a star moving at 900,000 kilometers per hour after undergoing a partial supernova. Um, mm. Yeah, so I guess this is like a... You know, if you like set a bomb off, but you don't have it enclosed in one end, this is like a cannon. Right. Uh, a supernova is a powerful explosion that occurs when some stars reach the ends of their lives. In this, but in this case, the blast was not sufficient to destroy it. Instead, it sent the star hurtling through space at 900,000 kilometers an hour. The astronomers think the object, known as a white dwarf, was originally circling another star, which would have been sent flying in the opposite direction. When two stars orbit each other like this, they're described as binary. One, only one of the stars has been detected by astronomers, however. The object known catchily as SDSS J1240 plus 6710. Wait, that's was, Elon Musk's kid's name. <laughs> <laughs> was previously found to have an unusual atmospheric composition. Discovered in 2015, it seemed to contain neither hydrogen nor helium, which are usually found, mm. appearing to be composed instead of an unusual mix of oxygen, neon, magnesium, and silicon. Now using the Hubble Space Telescope, an international team has also identified carbon, sodium, and aluminium. That's aluminium, not aluminum, because there's a BBC News article. Oh, yeah, it's got that. Yeah, there you go. In the star's atmosphere, all of which are produced in the first thermonuclear reactions of a supernova. But there is also a clear absence of what is known as the iron group of elements, iron, nickel, chromium, and manganese. These heavier elements are normally cooked up from the lighter ones and make up the defining features of thermonuclear supernovas. The lack of iron group elements in the star suggests that it only underwent a partial supernova before the nuclear burning died out. Lead author Boris Gas Gansicki from the Department of Physics at the University of Warwick said this star is unique because it has all the key features of a white dwarf, but it has this very high velocity and unusual abundances that make no sense when combined with its low mass. It has a chemical composition which is the fingerprinting of nuclear burning, a low mass, and a very high velocity. All of these facts imply that it might must have come from some kind of close binary system, and it must have undergone thermonuclear ignition. It would have been a type of supernova, but of a kind that we haven't seen before. The high velocity could be accounted for if both stars in the binary were carried off in opposite directions at their orbital velocities in a kind of slingshot maneuver after the explosion. The scientists were also able to measure the star's mass, which is particularly low for a white dwarf, only 40% of the mass of our sun, which would be consistent with a partial supernova that did not quite destroy the star. The nature of nuclear burning that occurs in a supernova is different from the reactions that release energy in a nuclear power plant or most nuclear weapons. Most uses of nuclear energy... Um, sorry, I just... Oh, okay. Uh, most... <laughs> Uh, a spam email just decided to open itself in front of... Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It might not be spam. I might be unfairly judging it. It's offering me <laughs> uh, air conditioning and heating in a mixture of upper and lowercase letters and some Cyrillic. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it could be legit. Who knows? Um, so it's, it's a different kind of nuclear burning that occurs in nuclear power plants and most nuclear weapons. Most uses of nuclear energy on Earth rely on fission 
which breaks down heavier elements into lighter ones rather than the fusion that occurs in a star. We talked about fusion um, a few months ago in a specialized fusion episode that is worth checking out. Um, the process developing during a thermonuclear supernova is very similar to what we try to achieve on Earth in our future power plants, nuclear fusion of lighter elements into heavier ones, which releases vast amounts of energy, says Professor Gansicki. In a fusion reactor, we use the lightest element, hydrogen, more specifically, uh, different flavors or isotopes of it. Um, again, like check out the episode with Dr. Damien about um, all of the, uh, the fusion experiments that are currently going on. Uh, in a thermonuclear supernova, the density and the temperature in the star become so high that the fusion of heavier elements ignites starting with carbon and oxygen as fuel and fusing heavier and heavier elements. The best studies thermonuclear supernovas are classified as type 1A. These helped lead... I presume that's a, that's a number character 1. And not, not a lowercase l? Yeah, yeah not type la. Yeah, type la. Like it's... Uh, just gone a bit scouse but um these help lead the discovery of dark energy and are now routinely used to map the structure of the universe but there is growing evidence that thermonuclear supernovas happen under very different conditions also is it supernovas now not supernovae Supernovae? that's what i was wondering i don't know is it the same as octopuses e to that yeah yeah, we're discovering all of the plurals that we thought that people were smug about as when we were younger are are false just don't take cacti from me i need cacti out here in the desert i like that too yeah. yeah. Um, I was disappointed with platypi. Is it, pla- is it platypuses? Yes. Ah. Is. Well, octopuses, we now know, is also, that's that's the legit version. Mm-hmm. Although octopi is acceptable. Or no, octopodes, right? Oh, that's right. Because it's, it's not Latin, it's Greek. So, um... There we go. So this star may be the survivor of a type of supernova that has yet been that hasn't yet been observed as it is happening. Without the radioactive nickel that powers the long-lasting afterglow of the Type La supernovas, or Type 1A, who knows, <laughs> the explosion that sent the White Dwarf careering across our galaxy would have been a brief flash of light that would have been dis- difficult to discover. Hmm. And you can check out the monthly the notices of the Royal Astronomical Society if you want to read the original paper, as I'm sure you will. Speaking of flashes of light across the sky, have either of you seen the comet? No, I, I, I just, I, I saw a thing about that this morning when it was too late to, obviously it was too late to check it out. Is it still visible tomorrow? What's the deal? Yeah, I think tonight, I don't know if this will go up, I think the 23rd for some reason is the last night. I've seen it on two different occasions. I mean, I guess I, guess I could have seen it all of the last seven nights, but I only went outside at the right time, two of those nights. But yeah, very... Um, easy to find the naked eye but you know you can't see a ton of detail it's just pretty clear there's this burst behind a a star just under the big dipper at about um i guess it wasn't visible it wasn't visible here until about 9 30 when there wasn't little enough light left from the sun well, you, I try you to go out. I tried to go out and see it a couple of nights ago, but there's still too much ambient light where I am in Van Nuys. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Andy's a big advantage that he's out in the desert now. He's out near Joshua Tree, so you Ooh, have sweet. substantially less light pollution. Oh yeah, but still s- significant. Like when I'm looking west, it's like ten o'clock. I'm like, oh, is the sun? Can you still kind of see? I'm like, oh no, that's the entirety of the Inland Empire in Los Angeles that still mm-hmm. looks like uh, a sunset. But. Yeah, it is remarkable just how massive and sprawling and populous and lit up LA is. Yeah. No, it's always on. It's always on. That's why when I love getting going to the UK or get, when during the festival, getting up in the hills 
And uh, that's amazing. If you go out to the Highlands, I'm camping out in the Highlands. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. it, it is like if you grow up, because I've always been a city kid or at least suburbs of the city. And it, I just remember being astonished the first time I was somewhere where you could actually see stars for real. Mm-hmm. Couple, couple of like two years ago, we went to a vacation in Kauai, and uh, and I was floating on a pool, and I just go, like, oh, I have not seen this many star fields in my life at once, because there was no light. Yeah, and Kauai's a small island, doesn't much, doesn't have much on it, so when night comes, it's all very dark and gorgeous. I love that. I can it, see the Milky Way pretty clearly out here, but there's still fair amount of light pollution. It's um. It is remarkable, just like you sort of, when you see things like that, you realize why, oh, that's why people were just, particularly before they knew the mechanisms behind it, but why it was so astonishing, why so many people would wrote poems and songs and made art about it, rather than just like these sort of little small specks in the sky that you get growing up in London. Yeah. These but events beyond our control or knowledge occurring with, with yeah, with such... The mystery becomes fast and big and strange, and you, yeah, you apply you apply your own template to it. It's amazing still that they didn't find better shapes to match up with what you're seeing because they're all such a stretch. Everything except for the Big Dipper to me is like mm-hmm. you're calling that a hunter with a bow and arrow. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You Cassie- have to do quite a lot of drawing around it. Yeah, I think they say it was that the Chinese uh, astronomers' imagery is more realistic or something. Oh, I'd, I've never thought to look up Chinese uh, constellations. Yeah, I just remember somebody, of course, my friend's Chinese-American. He could have just been going, everything Chinese is better. You suck. Thank you. But I'm just doing a quick image, Google image search of Chinese stars and constellations to see if these make any more sense. I think this requires more digging, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> no, do more digging. Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. Um, well, I think we've got, we've got time to squeeze in one quick story. Yeah. Uh, and we haven't done any listeners sent in stories yet. Uh, this one was sent in by Heather Robinson, uh, emailed to us at probablyscience at gmail.com, which is where you can send any stories you want us to cover. You can also tweet us at probablyscience and also message us Facebook slash probablyscience. But, um, oh yeah, sorry, I should put this in the show notes as well so you can also see them. But um, this is, I, I don't know why, why you thought we might want to cover this. But sperm-inspired robots nice. could be the next big thing in drug delivery. These flea-sized drones would swim through patients' blood vessels to deliver life-saving medication. Wait, wait, I want to say we did do this before, didn't we? Wait, did we? I believe oh, so. What's shit, the date this is on an older story. story. This is an older story. This is from, this is, yeah, I missed the... How oh, could Heather. we have missed this two years ago? Yeah, this, we, uh, yeah, I don't think we did miss this. Well, then I've got another one loaded up, ready to go. Let's we can, you can track down the old episode where we covered that. Do you want to do um, <laughs> just a open bacteria... an incognito tab for before? Uh... Yeah, a bacteria that feeds on metal or uh, Neanderthal extinction. Hmm. Or mathematicians refusing to work with police anymore, which was sent to us oh, on Facebook. I'm, wow, I'm kind of interested in that just because I haven't seen that one yet. So. Okay, well, this this story was sent to us by Stephen Ross on Facebook. Um, so the story is in Popular Mechanics, and yeah, we'll do a quick version of this because we are running low on time. Uh, but um, yeah, I, hundreds of mathematicians are boycotting predictive policing. Some academics are calling the controversial practice a scientific veneer for racism. We've talked before on the show a few times about how these various models and algorithms that are being 
developed and used for things like deciding on parole and policing and uh, sentencing and so on that are meant to be neutral and lacking in biases but right. actually have human biases built into them uh, from the beginning. Uh, but also several prominent academic mathematicians want to sever ties with police departments across the US, according to a letter submitted to notices of the American Mathematical Society. Uh, the letter arrived weeks after widespread protests against police brutality and has inspired over 1,500 other researchers to join the boycott. These mathematicians are urging fellow researchers to stop all work related to predictive policing software, which broadly includes any data analytics tool that uses historical data to help forecast future crime, potential offenders and victims. The technology is supposed to use probability to help police departments tailor their neighborhood coverage so it puts officers in the right place at the right time. But the letter says, given the structural racism and brutality in US policing, we do not believe that mathematicians should be collaborating with police departments in this manner. It is simply too easy to create a scientific veneer for racism. Please join us in committing to not collaborating with police. It is at this moment the very least we can do as a community. Uh, some of the math mathematicians include Kathy O'Neill, who's author of the popular book Weapons of Math Destruction, oh, God. which outlines the very algorithmic bias that the letter rallies against. There's also Federico Ardila, a Colombian mathematician currently teaching at San Francisco State, hey. who is known for his work to diversify the field of mathematics. Uh, uh, Jayadev Athria, an uh, associate professor at the University of Washington's Department of Mathematics, who also signed it, said, uh, This is a moment when many of us have become aware of realities that have existed for a very long time, and many of us felt it was important to make clear a clear statement about where we as mathematicians stand on this issue. The Electronic Frontier Foundation said uh, defines predictive policing as the use of mathematical analytics by law enforcement to identify and deter potential criminal activity. Oh this can include statistical or machine learning algorithms that rely on police records detailing the time, location, and nature of past crimes in a bid to predict if, when, where, and who may commit future infractions. In theory, this should help authorities use resources more widely, wisely and spend more time policing certain areas that they think will yield higher crimes. Ironic that that movie was called Minority Report at this point, isn't it? <laughs> and future crimes. It was built you know? into the title, yeah. Um, but it also could be combined with things like facial recognition technology, which is also highly controversial. But yeah, I'll put the whole link up story up here because it's a longer story that goes into a lot of detail. But again, it does talk about essentially what happens unsurprisingly is not only do they not want to be working with the police in general because of you know the, for uh various reasons of not wanting to add assistance to something that has caused harm and concern to various communities but um what happens is it, these these algorithms predict where crime is likely to occur or who is likely to be a criminal but baked into those probabilities is the racism that it, it becomes a vicious cycle like Racism causes certain communities to be prone to certain behaviors, uh, which causes over-policing, which in turn causes a reaction to the over-policing and so on. And then you get to go like, no, we didn't. We, we just put all the police there to harass this neighborhood because the algorithm told us to. Right. But yeah. Um, Facial identification doesn't work. I mean, we keep blowing John Lewis and Elisha Cummings all the time. With it, so <laughs> why the fuck do the police think they could do a good job? It's like Terry Gilliam movie. <laughs> oh, oh man. God. Yeah, there, there are, there are massive facial recognition in general has been known to 
again, this is one of the problems across tech where when substantial numbers of the people behind tech companies are from non-minority groups, they mm -hmm. don't even think to not build in the various protections against the biases that exist. Like it, right. ev these algorithms are programmed with the biases of their creators by accident uh, and then reinforce those biases and then are used as evidence that those biases were correct in the first place. Oh, yeah, I can see that. You know, it's thing things like the these supposedly dispassionate, um, neutral sentences sentencing algorithms that go like, on parole algorithms that go like, who's more likely to reoffend? And uh, and then they look through the algorithm, and what happens is it sort of spits out, oh, more more uh, black and brown people, so we should deny them parole at higher rates. Right. Uh, I mean, the, the bummer is like, I, I guess I'm only citing another podcast, but um, there was that Radio Lab episode on on blame, and they talked about um, somebody who had this brain condition that caused them. Like they had had some surgery to alleviate um, migraines and it took out some governor in their brain that made them then uh, sort of hypersexual and craving a rush that led to child pornography. Anyway, that was used as a mitigating thing in the sentencing. Um, and then they went into how bad um, people are as judges, how bad human judges are, how, how, how flawed we are and how much better things would be if you just relied on data for recidivism but then again you probably have run into this problem as often or more so I, I yeah know. and that, that's the republic and like I, I don't doubt that a lot of the people who brought in those algorithms were doing it with initially good intentions like they right. were hoping to take apart take away from someone who's black going in front of a judge and being judged right, more harshly right. than someone who's white but mm. not realizing that these algorithms still have those same biases baked into them and end up having more of an effect because you can't even point to the judge and go like, are you sure you're not now judging this person on right, an unfair right. curve? Because it's like, yeah, it's not me. It's just the, the, the computer program just told me. So it's... <laughs> the Clan 5000 computer. Look at this. <laughs> Why do we keep going to this company? <laughs> They just, it still says clan. It was the clan 2000, the clan 3000. Like that's not, the number's not the bad bit. Ironically, oh. ironic that white hat hackers are the good ones too, right? That's, that's, yeah. um, um, well, I hate to do this, but I actually have to run I to think a we Zoom should call. Well, that's we it. should wrap this up anyway. Mike, um, where can our listeners find out more about you and everything you're doing? Oh, you can look at me, uh, find it on Twitter. I'm always shooting my mouth off there. Um, at this Mike McShane. Um, and sooner or later, I'll put something on Facebook. I'm leaving Facebook for a while because I actually want to actually write something instead of little semi-witty pieces of crap that I post. <laughs> and so whatever uh, short stories and essays I'll write, I'll put a post to them. I haven't done that yet. Uh, but once I do, if you look me up on Facebook, you'll see a, a link to a blog post, which will have some comic essays and some stories. Um, I'm writing a comic, a comic story about the, the Last Supper right now awesome oh, nice. I, I can't wait i can't wait so check that out as always you can find us at probably science individually at andy t wood and at matt kershen probably science.com is the website where we put all of our show links and also our paypal and patreon links probably science at gmail.com is our email address for any questions comments clarifications stories you would like us to cover uh thank you so much for joining us mike my pleasure i'm gonna go back and listen to some of your stuff now oh please thank you thank you so much and uh listeners we'll see you next time Bye, guys.